Hi, this is Carolyn, and I'm here with Aaron. And this is our final episode with Bill Schillings, who wrote a book about sports parenting. In part one and part two, he talks about why sports parenting is so hard and why we get so emotional watching our children play sports. But here is part three. Bill, a part of your book that I really enjoyed is when you discuss as a sports parent, you have to consider the personality and wiring of your child, but you also should consider your personality as a parent. Can you discuss that a little bit? Sure. The way I presented it was it it can get very complicated because we're all so unique. And and we all know this. We have multiple kids, right? I mean, no two kids from the same family, almost never like the same personality. And plus, heck, now, now you complicate it with the if it's, let's say, a husband and wife team <laughs> parenting these kids, they each have their own personality. So now we've got a triangle, don't we? We've got mom with a personality, dad with a personality, and the kid with a personality. And then maybe another sibling with another personality. It gets pretty wacky. So I just try to boil it down. Go look. To me, there are three general types of wiring, let's just say. One is uber competitive. Another is, let's just call them performance oriented. They just like to play. They're not all that into like, am I winning or losing? And then I've had another category. I'm just going to call them relational people, right? Uh, Typically the the high school girl who, why do you really want to make your team? I'd ask her. So, well, I just want to be with my friends, (laughs) you know? So let's just say you have those three basic types and we know they can all blend together and there's overlap. But let's just say you have a competitive mom uh, we'll weave the story into this one. Okay. This particular mom and her daughter, daughter was really a nice little player. They played, she played tournaments all the time, fairly highly ranked. And it was pretty clear from the time the mom brought this kid over for clinics, the mom was just exactly like her kid. They were just wired. So identical. And uh, boy, I'm watching the kid play points in clinic. And I mean, every time she misses a ball, she's freaking out. So, of course, as a coach, you know, that's my job. Let's let's help walk through this. The challenge was the mom never left clinic. I mean, it's a two-hour clinic. She was there the whole time on the fence watching. And, of course, she was one of those, didn't have the greatest physical presence. Let's just put it that way. So what we've got here is we've got gas being thrown on the fire, right? If you have the kid and the parent wired the same way, my advice to you is somebody better check that. And who's in a better position to do it, the parent or the kid? And I would submit the parent. So if you're super competitive, you better knock it back a little bit if you also have a competitive kid or else it's just going to get crazy and you're going to end up with burnout or quitting or whatever challenges you have. But there's another spectrum. Let's just go to the uber relational performance oriented. Let's say you both have that. The kids just, eh, I just want to play and have fun. And a parent who's, I just want to play and have fun. So the parent then is just dropping them off, picking them up. If they're smiling, the parent's happy. But here's the problem. What if that kid could be really good? What if that kid really doesn't focus that much? What if they just kind of go, th- not that they go through the motions, it's just when, it t- when times come to really get into it, the kid is just kind of happy. They need to be pushed. And that's on the other side of the spectrum. Some parents, well, Bill, you're just telling me to relax, right? I was like, well, it depends on who you are. Some parents say, look, you got to get into this a little bit more. They need to get to more tournaments. Well, don't we go to the beach that weekend? Well, yeah, I get it. But your kid could play college tennis and we've got two or three years. We need to get going. So it's not uh, easy. (laughs) But being aware is the question. Do you even kind of, are you processing any of this? Are you aware that these dynamics are at place? Or are you just 
going according to what your instinct is. If I'm competitive, then gosh darn it, I'm going to put the pedal to the metal here and we're getting after it. Well, is that going to work? Well, now you have to look at what your kid's all about. My dad used to say this, water flows downhill. I'm always trying to figure out, and this is coaching and parenting are very similar, these principles. If I'm coaching a kid, I'm trying to figure out from day one how they're wired. I mean, I'm going to watch how they hit the ball for sure, but I want to know how they process. Who are they? What kind of person are they? What personality are they like? Because now I can figure out how I can talk to them, how to structure practices in ways that work with their personality rather than work against their personality. I want to work with them. And so who has to be paying attention and making some adjustments? It's the adults in the room. So when I deal with parents, and of course I did it for so long, I could almost read their body language when they'd come in or they'd drop off for clinic or whatever. And I'm like, if they're the type of parent that isn't aware of these things, and they're not, they're not the type of person that really is going to change or be willing to change the way they operate, then I'm like, we're really going to potentially have some challenges here. Because in my mind, we should be the ones that are kind of higher up on the organizational chart, <laughs> which kind of leads into the whole detachment thing. Can you just detach a little bit and get a little higher up on the, you know, let's look, be 30,000 feet rather than running around on the ground. Your kid can do that. But am I up here going, all right, is my kid developing character? Are we churning challenges into opportunities? Are we all about the competition here or, or how are they developing as a person? Are they practicing on their own or are we just dropping them off and picking them up from their lesson every week? Right. These are the kind of questions you're asking when you're up here. Your kid isn't asking all those questions. That's your job. Can you tell us about your most memorable moment on the court, both as a coach and as a player? <laughs> yeah, you gave me that that prompt. I, I looked at that this morning. You had sent that over. Do you know how hard that is to just give you one memorable moment? Aja, I'll give you one. The just first that came to mind, coaching. And it's just crazy that this is the first that came to mind because it's a kid that I probably dealt with for a year at the most. And his name was Yuki and Yuki was from Japan. I remember Yuki showed up. He was a 12, 13 year old kid, couldn't speak a word of English. And he came over to our academy and he wanted to learn how to play tennis. And he was basically a total beginner and he wanted group clinics. So they didn't want to do lessons. I get it. Let's, you know, be frugal with our money kind of thing. It's like, cool. But you have to understand, and this was tough because his mom didn't speak English too well either. You have to understand if we put group Yuki, and by the way, he's a big kid. He's like 12, 13, but he's a big 12, 13 year old kid. Guys, we're going to have to put him into beginner class. Beginner class is like eight, nine year old kids. They're little. And Yuki doesn't speak a word of English. And he just got over here. Um, long story short, Yuki just stuck it out. He figured it out. He did. He just tried so hard, even though he couldn't understand English. He just copied the coaches. His attitude was amazing. He didn't seem to be bothered at all by the fact that he's around little kids. Fast forward uh, a year later, he's a f- going to, he's a freshman in high school. And I learned that he makes the team at the, fr- at, at the high school. And I'm like, there was something about that kid during that whole year watching him develop and realizing at the end, after being a total beginner to a year later, he's making his high school team. There was just something about that as a coaching moment for me, which is representative of everything you would want in 
what coaches are looking for. So I thought that I could tell you tons of great coaching moments because that's a, you know one of the gifts of coaching. You have a ton of them with kids, but that Yuki moment was one of them. As a player, by the way, I love Mark Dillon's story of you know he and his brother at the ACC championship, with the mom tearing up. You can't just, you just can't beat that. But I'd say for me, it was just a tournament. Uh, a quick background is I had uh, I had one of my worst moments playing uh, right toward the end of when I was playing on the low minor league pro tennis. I was over in Spain. Let's just put it this way: I got beaten up pretty bad psychologically. <laughs> you know, you lose a lot. And I had one of my worst moments on a tennis court where I literally was just kind of done, uh, just wanted to be done. Uh, very isolating being in a foreign country when you're having your worst moments athletically. But about six months later, I was back in the States and I was playing another tournament and it was for more money than I'd ever played for. I got into the finals of a tournament and it, it, there was a lot of money on the line, at least in my world. And I was playing a guy, last time I played him, he had beaten me like 6-1, 6-0. And somehow, some way, I'm in the finals and it's match point at four serving five in the third at 30-40. I still remember it. This is like 1985. I still remember this point. And I can hardly hold the racket. I can, I can remember just hardly being able to hold the racket. But my coach, the other guy I was serving, had just drilled a couple of key principles in my head. Number one, make the guy play. No matter what you do, put the ball in play. And number two, if he comes to the net, aim for what we called secondary targets. Uh, basically hit through the guy. Don't try and hit around him. That's what a secondary target is. And so I just took a deep breath. The guy hit a serve. I hit it back. He came in like he always did. He hit a volley back. And I just put my head down and I just said, hit through him, go to the secondary target. I just put my head down. I hit the ball and I looked up and the guy had guessed the other way. So it was just wide open. And it was like slow-mo, man. The ball was in the air. And I'm like, when is it going to come down? Because it's going past him. All that's left has got to go in. And sure enough, it hit exactly where my coach had put that secondary target in practice so many times. And it seemed like that ball took forever to land, but it finally landed. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? So I still get goosebumps. That was just for me internally, one of the best feelings I've ever had on a tennis court. Shaking hands was really fun too, because the dude and I didn't get along that well, and he was not a happy camper, you know. <laughs> but uh, that was a fun moment, you know. Thanks very much to Bill for being on the podcast. If you'd like to purchase his book, you can go to BillShillings.com, and we've included a link to his website in our show notes. We hope you check out our website, which is secondservepodcast.com. In the resources section of our website, we've included a link to rules that we think adult rec players should know. Thanks so much for listening and hope to see you on the court soon. 